You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts of the show. Hello, I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So this month, we are in the thick of annual fee statement season, when some Florida Bar members may take a moment to look back on their work over the past year and perhaps think about making some changes going forward. At annual convention this week, the Bar honored 394 members who have been practicing for 50 years. So we imagine that this year, like any year, some members will choose to retire, some will close up their solo practice to join a larger firm, and some may choose to go in active. All of these career transitions require the member to update the bar and notify their clients. And each change comes with some specific rules and a form or two. So we're bringing in the experts to demystify this process for our members. Joining us today to talk about what the bar expects from you when you are transitioning your legal career are Jessica Malloy and Nathan McClure. Jessica Malloy is the manager of the Membership Records Department at the bar. She began her four-year tenure with the Florida Bar in Legal Specialization and Education as the Education Compliance and Accreditation Manager. Jessica's department assists bar members with their member information, they maintain statistical data on members, and they handle the billing and processing of annual membership fees. Nathan McClure has been a specialist in the Florida Bar Membership Records Department since 2014. He has assisted in leading the department into the digital age and continues to help improve the processes used to serve our members and staff. Welcome to the show, Jessica and Nathan. Hi, thank you. Thank you. So Jessica, I'm going to start with you. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your department at the bar. Yes, as you stated, I am the manager of the membership records department. I have been in this position for about a year and a half now, and most of our job is handling membership status changes, such as going into retirement, inactive status, members coming out of retirement or inactive, members who become judges. If a member is um, fee delinquent, we handle that as well. We also handle public records requests, and we also handle the membership fees, as you stated before, that started on April 20th, and we're really starting to pick up with the mail um, and processing all of those statements that have been coming in. Another big responsibility of our department is to um, just maintain all the records of the membership that we have at the bar. And so, Nathan, you have been in this department for quite a while. Can you tell us what are the most common calls that you're getting in your department from our members? Yeah, so a lot of it lately is, uh, you know, how to pay my fees. And, you know, we've moved a lot of the, you know, fee payment process online, trying to get folks to, to pay through the member portal. So they're trying to, to access that. 
And also now's the time that a lot of folks are, are um, trying to decide whether to continue like what we're doing today, you know, trying to either elect an active status or, you know, retirement. What is it? Because it's, we're kind of under that deadline. The fee season is the time to decide, you know. So on our website, legalfuel.com, uh, and just a disclaimer, Legal Fuel is a department of the bar. So we are colleagues with uh, Jessica and Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, but on our website, we have a checklist for members who have decided to retire, close their practices. And the very first item is to contact membership records. Can you tell us, on average, how many members retire or go inactive each year you know, if you don't have that number on the average number of how many went inactive or retired last year? Well, I don't have the exact number of how many chose it, but we usually have about 11,000 to 12,000 inactive members every year at the bar. And then we usually have about six to 700 retire each year. Wow. That, that's quite a big number when you consider uh, the total uh, membership. So, um, it is a large number, but you also have to remember we admit quite a few members too. Both in February and September, we have a large amount of members who take the two bar exams each year. And so we're admitting just as many as we're retiring. And do you know off the top of your head, how many members do we have right now? I feel like every time I ask you, it's 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 gone up substantially. It's at least 110,000. Um, we have a large number of members, yes. So can a member elect to go inactive at any time during the year um, or, and what do they need to do when they decide to go inactive? If a member would like to go inactive, they can only select that during fee season. So that would be from the start date of fee season until August 15th. Um, The start date does vary, so I can't specify that part. But as soon as fee season opens, they can go into their member portal, click the inactive button, and as long as they're a member in good standing, they can go inactive. And that is only between the beginning of fee season and August 15th. And do members ever share their reasons for deciding to go inactive as opposed to, you know, just keeping their membership active or full-on retiring? They will. We take a lot of phone calls again about that, you know, and inactive are usually not wanting to jeopardize or, or put into that retirement position where they only have a limited amount of time to do it. And then, uh, plus the ease of reinstatement, you know, it's a little easier as an inactive member. And they, most are out of state, they've moved or, you know. So how does a person's uh, member profile change on the Florida Bar website after they change their status? Once they elect inactive, it will state on the Florida Bar portal that they are inactive. And next to it, it will say not eligible to practice law in Florida. And do some people go inactive because of the fee? If, I mean, if they're not actively practicing, it, what's, can you tell us what the difference in fees are uh, between someone who's active or inactive or retired? Yes. So the inactive fee is $175 a year, whereas the active annual fee is $265. And sometimes that does play a part in why someone chooses to go inactive, especially if they're not practicing full-time. The retired members do not have a fee at all. They, um, if, as long as they elected before July 1, they're not responsible for this, the coming year's fees, and they um, 
they don't pay until they remove that in uh, retirement status. And so you mentioned something because when you elect to go uh, to retire versus being an active, some different like a time clock starts on, I know that uh, something happens at five years. So can you talk about um, how you explain to, because sometimes people call us and, and they're not really sure which one they're going to choose. Um, so what are the repercussions of being an active versus electing retirement status? I wouldn't say that there's um, necessarily any repercussions. If you're going inactive, it's a little easier to keep up with because you pay the 175 each year and you can stay in this status as long as you would like. And you don't have to remember at the five-year mark to remove it. Whereas if you retire, um, you don't pay any fees, but at five years, if you don't take the necessary steps to reinstate, your membership will go into permanent retirement. And if you ever wanted to practice again, you'd have to retake the bar exam. So someone could be inactive for like a dozen years. And if they paid that annual fee, they could just uh, contact you and uh, remove the inactive status and go right back to practicing? They wouldn't just be able to pay the fee and remove the status. They'd have to pay the fee, submit the petition for removal of inactive status. And if they've been inactive that long, there are going to be CLE requirements that they would have to complete. And CLE is the continuing legal education. Now, you you briefly touched upon this uh, previously, but we just went over sort of the qualifications for inactive. What are the, what about for retirement? When, when does the, when do you elect retirement? What are the fees, if any? What are the deadlines to come back to active status? Um, and what are any delinquencies uh, that may arise? The retirement is uh, kind of different in that, you know, there's, there's no limitation on when you can do it. Anybody can do it anytime. Um, okay. We, we just, we like to tell members that, you know, if you, if you're coming up on a new year and fees are due that it'll save you the two sixty five for the year, if you do it before June 30th, but I mean, it's not gonna, uh, you know, there's no, you could do it anytime. Um, then, then, um, then, then they're, you know, their status is retired. They, there's no fee. They're exempt from the CLE, um, but they only have that five years to to reinstate. And then after that, it's uh, you'd have to reapply to the bar examiners. Starting over. Yeah. So uh, just just <laughs> to reiterate like, for our listeners, don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Of course not, no. Uh, Just to reiterate for our listeners, inactive, you elect only during fee season. Retired, you can elect at any time. Uh, Inactive has a fee. Retired does not have a fee. Um, there, you can't practice law under either one, correct? Because we get that a lot. We mm-hmm. we get that question a lot. You know, I'm I'm just helping a friend, or I'm helping a family member um, that's still practicing law uh, as far as the bar is concerned. Mm-hmm. So. When you're retired or inactive, you are not eligible to practice law in Florida. And there's there is a little twist there um, that inactive and retired members are the only ones that can request emeritus status through the Supreme Court. So they can practice if, but the application is not handled through the bar. You have to go through your local um, bar association or legal aid to apply 
and it's um you know that goes to the supreme court and they decide who can and it's it's only pro bono yeah Okay, that's that's a good point. That's interesting. We do get calls about that, that they don't want to be running a firm anymore, but they would like mm-hmm. to still contribute. So that is good to know. So you, you talk about the different requirements for each one. If someone thinks they're going to be coming back, whether they've said, I, I'm going retired or I'm going to click, you know, check the box inactive, um, are both of those, if they're going to come back, do you recommend that they keep taking CLE courses and reporting uh, the credit I would suggest that, um, like you said, it's different for both. And in in the situation of being inactive, like Nathan said, if it's just because the member is out of state, it is likely that they're practicing in that state. And if so, the amount of CLEs they have to take might be less. So if you're inactive and you've been inactive for over five years, but you've been practicing in another jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. you only have to take the Florida law update. If you've been Uh, inactive for more than five years and have not been actively practicing, you have to take 33 CLE credits and the basic skills one and two again. If you're retired for more than three years but less than five, you must take 11 credits per year of retirement, um, total of 55. So if you're at that five-year mark, it's going to be 55. Um, If you're only at four, it's going to be 44. And again, beyond the five years, mm-hmm. as re- officially retired with the bar, you retake the bar exam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and how, do, how does that go over with members <laughs> when they call, when they call right. and find that out? Have you had to explain that yourself to someone over the phone that they will be studying and prepping for the bar exam again? I have not run into a lot of retired members who want to come out of permanent retirement. We do have the other status of lapsing. And we have people who try to come back from that status um, after five years and does not go over well. So tell us a little bit about that. So we talked about inactive, uh, retired, and that's people that make an active choice uh, mm-hmm. to change their membership status. But what, what about those lapses in membership and, you know, where they're delinquent for any number of reasons? What, what happens then? So it's similar to retirement. Um, If a member is delinquent in their fees, CLEs, uh, lawyer costs, there's a couple other ones, then they can, they'll stay delinquent. But once it hits that five-year mark, they'll receive a letter stating this is what you need to do if you want to come back to active status. If you don't do this, your membership will go into a permanent status of lapse and you will have to take their bar exam again. And I've had calls from members who were angry. They called up and they said, hey, I just saw my my client told me my member profile says I'm ineligible to practice law. So is that something that happens automatically? Your system, you know, is keeping track of uh, their fees and their CLEs. And so is that something you're doing manually or because they apparently they don't get their mail? Yeah, as soon as we change the status on the, on their record, yeah, it goes online. Yeah. And it is something that it's a manual process that our IT department handles. However, um, we give them the deadline way ahead of time. They know that their CLEs are due at a certain time. They get reminders. The same with fees. Um, We send them reminders. But yes, once we hit the date, usually October 2nd or 3rd for fees, you're delinquent. 
So this is slightly changing the subject, but something that still may be of relevance to your department. Um, we unfortunately get a lot of calls because of, of the practice management nature of our department um, mm-hmm. from family and staff of deceased attorneys. And we even did a whole episode on inventory attorneys. So if the attorney was still practicing uh, when they passed, we direct the caller to lawyer regulation to find out who their inventory attorney is. Um, but do the family or staff also need to reach out to membership records to notify you of uh, the deceased? Yes, we do need to be notified. Um, and a lot of times during fee season is when we will get notified that a member has passed because we'll send them a fee statement in the mail and their family member or their former employer will send it back stating this person has passed away. Um, So it is good for family members or if staff is made aware that they let them know that they should contact membership records so that we can either receive the obituary, look for it online. Um, We also accept a death certificate. That way we can code them in our system and no longer send them fee statements or no longer send them notices of CLEs. Right. There's nothing worse than, you know, having a a family member or a colleague pass away and then receive infinite notices from not Mm -hmm. just the bar, but from anyone. So, you know, the the important thing is to notify the bar's lawyer regulation department with regard to inventory attorney. But again, membership records uh, needs to be notified as well. So um, they can, you know, start the process and maintain those records up to date. And I want to ask you, because I I think that everyone, regardless of what your department is at the bar, if you have contact with members, um, there are things that we tell members over and over and over again in our department. Like we probably tell people that there's three forms that they need to open their trust account, you know, like over and over and over because somehow they, you know, that's not on the bar exam. They didn't get the message. What is something if you could share with members that you would want them to know that it's something that you just answer over and over again, but you would like to get the word out to our members? That could be a very long list. <laughs> um, I was, I would say one important thing um, that we get a lot of phone calls about is members updating their username for their member portal. Aha. I think it's important that they know that they can call us, but regardless of the phone call, we're going to need it in writing. So please email us at membership records at floridabar.org. Yep, and, and changing your email on the profile doesn't automatically update your username. That's really one of the only things you can't change online. And, and so you have to email us to get us to, to match it up. If that's what you want to do. Oh, I know another question that we get for, for members is, um, when they've decided to be a virtual uh, firm. So they're not going to be at their, their old mailing address. Um, do you, we tell people, and I hope this is correct, that they are allowed to have a forward facing, like the public facing member profile that that maybe shows a mailing address or, you know, it's a PO box, um, but that they need to contact you because we still have to have mm-hmm. a real address for them. What what do you tell virtual attorneys that call in and ask you about yeah, that? Yeah, the same. You know, we, if they if they don't want, you know, they all I have is a home address, you know, I we suggest, you know, mm-hmm. either get a P.O. box or if you have an alternate address you can use for remailing and then provide us your physical, which you can, we can hide from public view, you know. 
Okay, excellent. Right. Just for, again, for our listeners, the bar needs to know where you physically practice law. Um, not where, not just where you get your mail, although we'd like to know that too. Um, <laughs> but we need to know where your desk is at when you are practicing law. And that doesn't always need to uh, be public. So if you are a virtual attorney working from home, make sure that you have that information on your profile. And if you don't know how to do it, contact membership records. So thank you, Jessica Malloy and Nathan McClure for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If our listeners have more questions, where can they find information uh, about your department and how do they contact membership records? They can email us, which I believe is the best way. And that's membershiprecords at floridabar.org. And our phone number is 850 850- Five six one five eight three one. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, so Jessica told us if, if a member wants to go inactive, it's as simple as marking that on their annual fee statement. Um, but then there are forms required if they're going to retire. Carla, do you know where our listeners can find those different forms? Sure. Um, so you want to go to the Florida Bar's main site, floridabar.org. And then if you hover over the news and events, the very last item on the drop-down menu is forms and publications. And then you're going to see a bar forms and applications uh, link. You want to click that. And then that'll take you to yet another page <laughs> where you'll see um, the membership records forms. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the categories on this page. So you can access all of those membership records forms there. Or if you're listening to this podcast through uh, legalfuel.com, you will see that it will be linked directly below the podcast. So we will include those resources as well as the informational packets that we discuss uh, later in the uh, segment. Um, We'll include all these resources uh, with the podcast for easy access. But again, floridabar.org, then news and events, then forms and publications, then bar forms and applications, (laughs) and then membership (laughs) records. Perfect. Thank you, Carla. Joining us now to talk about what the bar requires of you when you are transitioning your legal career is Jonathan Grab. Jonathan has served as Assistant Ethics Counsel for the Ethics and Advertising Department of the Florida Bar for over six years. During that time, Jonathan has fielded approximately 20,000 calls on the ethics hotline. He's reviewed thousands of lawyer advertisements, issued dozens of staff opinions. Prior to working at the Florida Bar, Jonathan was a senior attorney in the agency for Persons with Disabilities, where he handled a variety of matters, including appellate cases, federal litigation, administrative hearings, and rulemaking. Jonathan is an alumnus of Florida State University's College of Law class of 2008. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hi, glad to be with you. So, Jonathan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your department at the Florida Bar? Sure. So, um, 
I work with the ethics and advertising department, and we handle a variety of issues, but mainly our uh, big part of our function is to man the ethics hotline, as well as to issue written ethics opinions when they are submitted in writing to us. Now, uh, along with that, we also review lawyer advertisements to make sure that they comply with the advertising rules in subchapter 4-7, as well as we help staff various committees for the Florida Bar. So one of the big questions that we get in our department, um, people are calling in for practice management advice, running the business side of their firm, and they'll casually mention that they're inactive or they've retired, and which brings up the question in our mind, does that mean you're out there practicing law? So if an attorney goes inactive or retires, are they allowed to give legal advice? And what if it's free legal advice? So if you look at rule 1-3.2 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar, and this is actually in uh, the first chapter, not chapter four, the rules of professional conduct, it does discuss the various membership classifications. Um, Now, I suspect you've already covered a lot of this uh, with the membership record staff, Um, but when you talk about, um, in particular, inactive status or a lawyer who has decided to retire from their membership with the Florida Bar, um, it does actually specifically note that um, for inactive members under 1-3.2 sub C, um, that they affirmatively represent their membership status as inactive anytime that they reference that they are a member of the Florida Bar, as well as they not hold themselves out as being able to practice law in Florida or render advice on matters of Florida law unless they are actually as, uh, certified as an emeritus lawyer under Chapter 12. So, Jonathan, just in, in line with what we've been talking about and, and given that you your department uh, does man the ethics hotline, um, can an inactive or retired Florida lawyer call the ethics hotline and seek advice? They can. Now, our advice is going to be somewhat limited. Um, they technically are supposed to be a member in good standing when you call the ethics hotline. And that's who we give advice to. Now, if somebody calls in and they're not a member in good standing, we're not just going to hang up on them. We're certainly going to try and you know give them the advice that we can provide, or at least point them in the direction of advice that may be helpful to them, such as rule references. But yes, if they're an, an active member, um, at that point, they are not able to practice law or offer legal advice, as previously noted. And so our our guidelines, our rules in chapter four, the rules of professional conduct are focused on currently practicing lawyers. So again, it's not something that would directly apply to their specific circumstances. So it's not something we're going to be able to give a full opinion on the way we would for an actual member in good standing who is on active status. And we get we get so many calls and we, uh, um, you know, we want to help them, but we do not interpret the rules. So we kick up, uh, we'll read the rule to them, but we are typically going to direct them to the ethics hotline to talk to you. Um, and one of the questions that comes up is when the roster of attorneys at a firm changes or the firm closes, there are some specific rules on notifying clients. And I know that you even have uh, informational packet, ethics informational packet on that. But can you talk about the advice that you would give to a caller on your hotline who asks, well, which clients must be notified? Sure. And so this is under Rule 4-5.8 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And uh, that can be, of course, found on the Florida Bar's website. Um, 4-5.8 notes that, yes, you should give that joint notice or unilateral notice if you're unable to negotiate a good uh, joint letter 
after good faith bona fide negotiations with the law firm and you're the departing lawyer, um, you may send out that unilateral letter. But regardless, it should go to those who you've had direct client contact with and where you've provided significant legal services. So those are the two criteria that you'd be looking for about the recipients of the letter. So this may be obvious to some, but we get this call all the time from firms and or departing attorneys, depending on, you know, what's stage they're in 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 client notification. And the dispute is often who the client belongs to. And, you know, it's it's mind boggling sometimes, but they get really frustrated because they're very insistent. The client belongs to me. That attorney can't take the client. Or if it's the departing attorney, this is my client. I brought them to the firm. They're coming with me. Um, Can you discuss the rule on clients' right to counsel of choice and why this choice must be provided to clients being notified of a departure or a dissolution? Sure. And this is where 4-5.8 really sort of intertwines with the lawyer's duty of communication under Rule 4-1.4, as well as a lawyer's duties in withdrawing from the representation. If ultimately uh, one of the lawyers is not going to be representing the client anymore, then 4-1.16, the rule for withdrawing, would require that they also give appropriate notice to the client under that provision as well. Um, 4-5.8 does note in sub A that it's not intended to affect any contractual obligations between the lawyers and the law firm or between the lawyers and the client. However, there is still that ultimate fundamental duty that a lawyer has to keep the clients adequately informed. And our rules, as always, focus on making sure that clients have the right to choose who they want as as their lawyer and to make those decisions on a fully informed basis. And that's really what our rule is focused on. It's less about attorneys being able to fight amongst themselves about whose client is whose, but rather giving the client the information that they need to make an informed decision. And we have um, actual template letters on our website, legalfuel.com, to help the attorneys um, send out. And there's a lot of different versions of it because um, sometimes people uh, leave the firm on very bad terms. And you've, you've talked about that a little bit, but do you get those calls where you can tell, have you, this has happened to me several times, I get two calls, I can tell that those are the two parties involved. They haven't, you know, they don't identify themselves because we don't, we don't have to have them tell us their bar number or anything. Do you get that where someone is explaining the question to you or the situation and then you'll get the partner on the other side? How do you, how do you sort that out? I mean, are you, are you just, um, do yeah, things like how, change? How do, you, yeah. how do you determine whether they've, you know, done their negotiations in good faith mm-hmm. or not? And, and when that unilateral letter can go out? So ultimately, that determination has to be made on a case-by-case basis. I mean, there's no perfect formula that's, formula that's going to tell you, okay, here's when good faith bona fide negotiations have fallen apart. Now, you know, some of the common recommendations that we would give is try and set some sort of uh, deadline for a response that seems reasonable, allowing the other side time to respond to that. Um, and say, you know, look, if you don't respond by such and such date and time, then, you know, I'm going to consider bona fide good faith negotiations as having failed. And I'm going to start the process for unilateral notification. And of course, you got to make sure you comply with those specific requirements for that unilateral letter. Um, But that is one thing that you can potentially consider as an option. Now, uh, calls on the hotline, of course, are confidential. We're not going to share anybody's information with anybody else. And yes, there are sometimes those very awkward moments where you say to yourself, not out loud, of course, (laughs) but you say, you know, in your own head, 
uh, wow, I'm pretty sure I spoke with the other person in this argument just a few moments ago. And yeah, it can be difficult at times to, you know, not try and bring in that information from the prior call because of course, you know, they, again, they are confidential. We can't let them know that the other person is also contacting the hotline or has contacted the hotline. Um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly does happen on uh, from time to time uh, where these relationships get very acrimonious. And yes, a lot of lawyers see the rule as, you know, these are my clients, you know, I brought them into the firm or um, they, you know, I own this law firm, therefore they're my clients, they should stick with me. You know, this person was just an associate. Well, that rule makes no distinction whatsoever between partners and associates. If there is that direct client contact and there's significant legal services provided, then they should receive a copy of that joint letter. I'm glad you said that because that is another question that we constantly get because they think it's completely different if they're the partner and it's the associate that left. Um, But kind of pivoting to a different issue, if it is a partner that is leaving, um, because this is part of, you know, you're going to retire or or wrap things up and there's people staying, can you talk about just briefly about, um, because there are specific rules about the name of the firm. Um, if, If you've been known as, you know, the four names and now one of the primary name partners is leaving, what happens? with the firm name? Where do the rules come in there? Sure. So the rule for firm names is rule 4-7.21 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And really the focus more than anything else in all the provisions in that rule is that the firm name can't be misleading. Uh, There's provisions that state that you have to use a name consistently. Um, You can't keep switching back and forth between the registered firm name and a trade name or multiple trade names. Whatever name you use, got to use consistently. And likewise, there's another provision in 4-7.21 that states that you can't falsely imply that you have a partnership when none actually exists. Now, there are a series of ethics opinions, um, and these are actually from uh, a fair amount of time ago, uh, that address to what extent you can keep a retired or of counsel lawyer's name in the firm name, uh, or in some instances, the name of a deceased lawyer who is no longer with the firm, of course. And so for that, you want to start with ethics opinion 64-20. It addresses in particular that, uh, for example, say you have a lawyer leave to become a judge. In that instance, you cannot keep that lawyer's name in the firm name. It is inherently misleading or improper for you to keep a judge's name in the firm name. Along with that, 64-20 and 65-55, which overlaps with a lot of the same issues, discuss that, yes, you can use a deceased partner's name in the firm name, potentially if there is continuity in the ownership of the law firm. And now what that means here is that you can't just sell the law firm off and keep the name. So if it's the law office of Joe Smith, and now he's selling it to Bob Johnson, Bob Johnson can't say that it's the office of Smith and Johnson because there was never continuity of ownership. Now, if it was the law office of Smith and Johnson and Smith retires or passes away, then at that point, Bob Johnson could potentially keep Smith and Johnson as the firm name because there was that continuity of ownership from one owner to the next, even though the original, you know, Joe Smith is no longer a member of that firm. We also get a lot of questions from um, partners that are retiring and they're, they kind of want to keep 
dabbling in it, but they're not going to really be there. And so they're like, I'm going to be of counsel, but they think that they're retired. Um, and we covered this a little bit with membership benefit, the membership records um, employees. But if someone has told the bar they're retired, can they be of counsel? Can their name be on the firm? Can they be listed of counsel on the letterhead? Those kind of things. So in this case, it depends on what you mean by retired, mm-hmm. because if they're retiring simply from their job, you know, the, the place that they've been working, the law firm, then yes, if they were a partner and they want to keep their name in the firm name or they want to keep continue working exclusively through that law firm, then yes, they may do so. Um, now, on the other hand, if they're retiring as a member of the Florida Bar, um, there, there you have to look more, again, at the continuity of the ownership, all of that. And no, they wouldn't be able to continue practicing through the bar, um, in that, or sorry, through the law firm in that instance. Um, so that would be part of the distinction there is, you know, what, when you say retirement, what exactly do you mean? Retiring from your job or retiring as a member of the Florida Bar? Um, now, in regards to being of counsel, we actually have an of counsel informational packet on our website. Um, it's extremely useful. In particular, the first opinion in that packet is ethics opinion 00-1. And there it notes that, yes, uh, similar to a deceased partner or a partner who is retiring from the bar or who's retiring from uh, the firm and or the bar, they can keep their name in the firm name if they are entirely exclusive to that law firm. Now, if they decide, well, I'm going to do a little bit of work out on the side and create my own independent firm, or I'm going to be of counsel or work through a separate law firm while I'm still of counsel to the firm where I was a partner, at that point, they are no longer exclusive and their name must be removed from the firm name. It's a good distinction. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Um, so the attorney has now retired and they're closing up shop or they're leaving the firm, but the firm is continuing. So... The next question we usually get a lot is what happens with the client files? Can they go with the attorney or do they remain with the firm? So absent an agreement to the contrary, 4-5.8 states that yes, the files would generally stay uh, with the law firm when, a deter- when an attorney leaves a law firm. Um, by contrast, you know, again, you could have some agreement that provides otherwise, uh, you know, assuming that the clients don't elect for a different resolution and have the files, you know, stay with the law firm or go with the departing attorney, uh, contrary to that agreement, in which case, of course, the, the client's direction guides. Um, but in conjunction with that, if there is a dissolution of a law firm under Rule 4-5.8, uh, there is a note, uh, basically a provision in sub E2 that states that, yes, in that event where there's the dissolution of a law firm, the file goes with the lawyer basically who is primarily responsible for rendering legal services to that individual client. And we get a lot of questions about closed files. And again, the ethics department comes through because you guys have a wonderful informational packet on closed files. So say your firm was called um, Tallahassee criminal defense attorneys and you sell it to someone and there's a whole, you have a room full of closed files. Do you take those closed files with you as after you've sold it and you're, or should they stay with that firm with that name for when the, if the client comes looking for their records or files? So there's actually a rule, uh, 4-1.17, that specifically deals with the sale of the law practice. And it actually has notice provisions in that rule for any existing clients of the law firm 
uh, to be notified about the transition and the ownership of the law firm, as well as you know giving them an opportunity to object to that transition if they don't want their file to go with that new lawyer. And if the original attorney who's selling the practice you know has that objection and potentially is not interested or available to conclude the representation, then yes, at that point, they'd need to withdraw. Um, but the files... And regardless, uh, basically need to be com- uh, held in compliance with our closed files informational packet, as you noted. And really what, again, that focus is on is the client's desires in those particular situations. Uh, best scenario, really, rather than waiting until you get to that point, a lawyer should have something in their retainer agreement that states what their expectation is for retention of the file, uh, for making the file available after the representation is concluded. Because otherwise, it's going to be all the more complicated for that lawyer then to go about disposing of those files if they find that they've got you know, 200 banker's boxes sitting in a storage room you know, mm-hmm. that they don't know what to do with. And you know, even worst case scenario, that lawyer passes away and then their family opens the storage room to find that there's 200 files that they don't know what to do with. And I believe you discussed this actually a couple episodes ago um, in the inventory attorney process. Um, And so I'd encourage people to take a look at that and get some information there. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a problem if the lawyers don't do that planning ahead of time. That's we we do get that question. And it's I think it's funny because when you're a brand new attorney, you're just thinking about getting those clients in the door. And when we say to them, go ahead and in your actual retainer agreement, tell them what you're going to do with the file when it's over. It's like their mind's not there yet. So we do have those templates on legalfield.com in our document library. Yeah. So so assuming that we are in a worst case scenario where there are 200 files in bankers boxes um, and you know the attorneys are going through the motions they've notified clients but clients have certain clients notably so because they've it's been so long have failed to respond so they they have not advised the attorney or law firm who is to provide future legal services what happens when clients don't respond Right. And so there is basically the situation that can become very complicated because the attorney has to go through each of those files individually to make sure that they aren't disposing of anything that would be uh, the client's own uh, materials that they own personally, or that would be an essential original document where that original must be kept as required by court rule, statute, contract, otherwise. Um, Things like wills, trusts, deeds, that sort of thing, where you can never dispose of the original. Um, Assuming that it's not one of those essential original documents, there are a few specific requirements for records retention uh, that are in the rules regulating the Florida Bar, but they are very specific. Um, In particular, it's going to be things like uh, a lawyer must keep a copy of a contingent fee contract for a minimum of six years after the matter. A contingent fee closing statement must be retained for six years after the close of the matter. Uh, Trust accounting records must be retained for six years after the conclusion of the matter or the closing of the trust account. And so uh, there are those specific requirements. Um, One more that I uh, almost forgot about is the statement of insured client's rights has to be retained for six years. Um, So those are the specific requirements that are in the rules, but beyond that and beyond those essential originals that can't be uh, ever destroyed potentially, then it becomes a little bit more difficult to discern. Because at that point, the attorney really should reach out to any clients where they haven't already made the arrangements and figure out if the client wants that file. 
And, you know, yes, that may mean sending a letter to the last known address as discussed in that closed files informational packet. And when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of files and addresses that may be, you know, 30 or 40 years old, that can be really time consuming and really difficult to comply with that obligation. Um, in the alternative, records may be kept electronically, again, if they're not those essential originals. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, but the earlier you do that planning, the easier it's going to be when that finally comes up. And, and again, just to go back a few questions. So in the event that the client doesn't respond, the file belongs to which party? Where does the file stay, um, assuming that the firm is staying open, but there is an attorney departing? If it's closed, is that your question, Carla? Yeah, if there are closed mm -hmm. files or even even client notification, you know, in any client notification letter, if, if the clients don't respond um, as to not just future representation, but their closed files, what they want done with them, where do the files go? So again, absent some agreement or provision to the contrary, uh, they would normally stay with the law firm that the lawyer was, uh, the, the lawyer represented them through. Um, so, you know, yes, again, it, it's uh, easier to make that call and figure out, you know, the responsibilities when there is a firm that's going to continue after the lawyer's departure. Um, because there, you know, is there an agreement to the contrary or not? And if there's not, then yes, the files are generally going to stay with the law firm. And the law firm then is going to have to figure out what to do with those closed files, you know, someday down the road. And client notification. So in the old days, when I remember being at the firms and there were, we did so many, uh, you had to do the certifi certified mailings and you, you know, you'd get the little cards back in the mail. So we did get the call um, quite often where it says, if I email my clients all this information, is that in writing? And does it, do I have to have a letter? If I have a copy of the email, like where's the line there? Because everything's going virtual. You know, we just did our first virtual annual convention. Is email enough? So potentially it could be, yes. If you have an email address that you're confident is actually from that client and that they're giving you authorization to uh, take certain, certain actions with regard to that file, then yes, that email address may be sufficient. There's no bright line standard. Um, but certainly if you get you know uh, an email from some random person who just happens to have their email address matches the name of the client, but you've never seen this email before, well, you know, you may want to take that extra step of being careful and making sure you're not inadvertently revealing that client's confidential information to someone else, someone other than the client. And so, yes, there may be situations where you need to take that extra step and, you know, make sure that those, that client information is protected. Right. So definitely verify, even once you have sent that email and they respond, verify that it is in fact the client. And also, um, Christine mentioned certified mail. And it's not always a perfect system, um, but you can request delivery receipts and you know confirmation that the email has been read. So if you have that feature in your email client, which most do these days, that would be just one more little piece to show mm -hmm. that you you know, did what you had to do, um, as opposed to just sending an email out into the ether and hoping someone receives it. Sure. And um, along with that, I mean, yes, once you've made those diligent efforts to try and determine if the client is interested in having their file, if you're looking at disposing of the files, um, then yes, you may actually dispose of any, again, non-essential documents 
uh, following that point. Um, you know, again, those documents that are not uh, essential originals required by court rule, statute, or contract, or that aren't the property of the client themselves. Um, and so, again, that's what you're going to see in that closed files informational packet is that, yes, at that point, you can start disposing of things. But to avoid all of those issues of trying to go out and you know make that additional contact in advance, there is a model retention policy actually that you can get in that closed files informational packet uh, that you can set up for your firm uh, and basically use that as a template to help you through this process. Um, one other thing that kind of ties into this that lawyers should keep in mind is that the time restriction on filing a bar complaint in 3-7.16 of the rules regulating the Florida bar is six years. So even for those documents that aren't essential, you still may want to hold on to that file for six years after the representation. Because if somebody comes out of the woodwork and files that complaint against you saying, oh, my lawyer never called me, you know, I never heard back from them, it may be nice to have those notes to say, oh, I actually tried an attempt at contact on this date. I sent a letter to the client's last known address on this date, never got any response. That's an excellent point. So it's not just for the convenience of your former client. It also is good to keep the receipts. I had not considered that part of it when we're telling people to hold on to those files um, and follow the guidelines. Can you also just to clarify, because we've gotten some weird questions about this too, what is the proper way to dispose of closed client files once you have met all of the requirements? The trash bin. (laughs) (laughs) So... Would not recommend just putting them in a regular (laughs) trash bin. Um, Yeah, you need to make sure, again, that you protect the confidentiality of those materials as you're disposing of them. Putting them in a recycling bin or a trash bin without doing something to assure that the confidential information included in those uh, is not readily obtainable by somebody who just happens to come by and see your garbage can or trash or your recycling bin. I mean, yeah, that is part of your responsibilities as a lawyer. And so if, you know, some third party gets access to your information because you didn't, you know, shred the documents or potentially, you know, have them incinerated or have some thir- trusted third party service dispose of them. I mean, yes, that could potentially come back to bite the lawyers. So don't, don't take the shortcuts. I mean, that, you know, it sounds easy to just throw it in the garbage and say, I'm done with it, but please don't do that because yes, it can come back to bite you. And I I like to ask, uh, Anytime we're talking to someone in-house, there's like a lot of departments have frequently asked questions on their part of the website, but you've been at the bar for a while. What is the thing that you are, that you really want our members to know that would cut down on hundreds of phone calls if you could just get the word out? What's 20,000 calls <laughs> taken, yeah. so what can yeah. cut down those Because they don't tell you everything in law school. What, <laughs> what, do they, what do our members need to know from you? So really, I mean, the ultimate thing that they need to watch for and the ultimate purpose of the rules of professional conduct is protecting clients. These rules are about the clients. Now, frankly, we probably get the most calls about 4-5.8. And yes, when lawyers are arguing with each other about, you know, uh, my former supervisor doesn't want to let me notify the clients that I'm leaving the firm. They shut me out of the system. You know, what do I do now? Or frankly, you know, on the other side, we get the lawyer calling in, you know, saying, you know, I generated these clients. I'm the one who does all the advertising. It's my name and the firm name. You know, and now this lawyer who just happened to meet with them a couple times and write a couple motions, wants to send them a joint letter, you know, that's really not what we're here for. And that's not what the rules are here for. 
They're about protecting clients. And so, again, that's what the focus of all of this is, is making sure that when you dispose of files, clients are informed, clients are protected, that their original documents are protected, that, you know, again, the confidentiality of that information is protected, that clients can make informed decisions about who they want as their lawyer or where their file is. So I, that's really the focus. And now, I, you know, I, I get that that's not probably going to cut down on too many calls coming <laughs> into the hotline. And in fact, you know, we welcome the calls. That's why we're there. But, you know, that being said, that's really, I think, the focus of what I would take away from this is that when you're thinking about how you make these decisions, plan ahead. You know, again, have that retention policy, explain it to your clients at the start of the representation so that that way you don't have to do all this work at the tail end. But if you don't make those preparations, be ready to do all that work at the tail end because that is your ethical duty. And yes, potentially it it can come back to bite you if you don't go ahead and make sure that you make those efforts to protect your clients. Excellent. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you, Jonathan Grab, for joining us today. Again, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So if our listeners have questions, where can they find all these magical ethics informational packets and how do they reach you at the Ethics Hotline? So anybody who's interested in getting more information from the hotline, they're always welcome to call us at one 800 235-8619. Um, and we're happy to be there. You know, we are on the hotline nine to five every weekday. Um, so yes, we should be available to them. Um, if they'd like to find the information on their own, uh, they can also find a lot of this uh, by going to the Florida Bar's website, floridabar.org. In the top of the webpage, they should see a link for rules and ethics. Once they click on that, On the left hand, you'll see a big box that has a link for the rules themselves, the rules of professional conduct, as well as all the other chapters of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And then in the center, there's a link for ethics. And that center link for ethics will take you to all sorts of resources, including our ethics opinions, as well as under the uh, resources heading on the following page, there's a link for those informational packets. And again, they are so helpful. So I strongly encourage lawyers to take a look at those because they really, you know, there's not a lot of things that are new under the sun. And so a lot of this really has been addressed in those packets um, and can really be helpful to lawyers and frankly, probably more useful than in the sense of calling in, just getting that temporary, you know, the advice that maybe they're not able to fully write down. Well, right there, they've got it in writing. They can look at it as many times as they want. Perfect. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar Podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.